back. Hello, everybody. Oh, now we're back. I start before you before it starts recording. No, I think no. I waited. I said three, two, one, and then I pressed the record button. I'm pretty sure we got that. I don't. I don't know. We'll listen to it later. Welcome to All Things Wicked and Vile. We're your hosts, V. Oh, and I'm sad. You almost forgot to say your name. I know. I was reading something. Baseball. <laughs> you no, you lie. <laughs> You're not a very good liar. You know that, right? I can when I need to. Yeah, I don't know about that. Hungry, <laughs> so he needs to hurry up with Yeah, I know. I'm about to starve. So well, this is episode two of today. Yeah, the one the episode two that we're recording today. Yes. Episode like thirteen. We really gotta make it up to the followers for not posting. Yeah, well I posted a couple of things. I posted Smiley Face part one and two. I didn't do Anne Marie Fahey, which I will at some point. I just haven't edited it. Edited it yet. I cannot say that word. Edited. But that's not, just the weirdest fucking I have word. Edited. I have not edited anything. But no business to attend to other than I have a headache, but I told you guys that the last episode. Check out my Etsy shop. Etsy shop, Patreon, blog, website, whatever the fuck the you guys want to do. Yeah, she donates money. For if you guys subscribe to our Patreon, we will love you forever. Um and we will use that to help improve the podcast and get stuff for merch because I think that'd be cool to have merch. I just yes. I just really would like merch. But you know, it's whatever you want to do. If you don't want to donate, that's fine. Just you guys listening, you know, makes it up to us. We're almost to fifty listeners. Almost to fifty guys. We love you. We love each and every one of you. And, and we will be doing ads, but yes. that doesn't mean we're gonna be sellouts. I don't We're not gonna be sellouts, but I would like to make like a little bit of money to improve like our audio quality and improve better mics. Better mics, better sound equipment, better recording and editing devices and stuff like that that's kind of what we're merch and like giving you guys goodies if you do subscribe to our patreon that kind of stuff you know but that's up to you guys if you want to do that but we've got a wild one to talk about today i'm so excited about this one we're gonna be talking about Catherine knight or the female hannibal lecter of australia the blue-eyed butcher and my sources will include Murderpedia and a couple of articles. I found one on abc.net, and then there was another one. I Well, no, no, it was only one. Okay. Maybe another one I don't remember. So, Catherine Knight was the first woman in Australia to be sent into life in prison without the possibility of parole, and this is her story. Dun-dun! I, I thought about Law and Order for a second there. So, Catherine was born on October 24th, 1955, to parents Barbara and Ken Knight. Her mom and her partner were the subject of an affair that shook a conservative town to its core. Barbara was forced to move towns because she had cheated on her husband with Ken. Ken was her ex-husband's co-worker, which made it that much worse. So already there's a lot of tension and drama happening. And it just gets worse from here, guys. It's, it's go, we're going downhill. This is the top of the roller coaster compared to the rest of the story. Just, just, just wait until how much we get there when we get to actual murder. Like, there's a lot. Barbara's grandmother claimed to be an indigenous aboriginal who had married an Irishman. Barbara kept her lineage or genealogy to herself because the area that they lived in was really racist, but she was proud of her and her family's heritage. Here's a quote from Murderpedia. Apart from her twin, the only person Knight was close to was her uncle, Oscar Knight, who was a champion horseman. She was devastated when he committed suicide in 1969 and continues to maintain that his ghost visits her. So that's weird. And it just gets worse from here. And Murderpedia is just like my life now. So here's another quote about Catherine's early life. This just, I felt like this just summed it up. The reason why I use quotes sometimes is sometimes I am not very eloquent with, with writing words. So Murderpedia is good for like 
they kind of explain things better than I can or because I try to rephrase things. I use Murderpedia a lot and just kind of rephrase some things to make sure that I'm not like blatantly like copying and pasting what they're saying. But I try to like include all the information. But Murderpedia does have some good, I use a lot of quotes from them. Um, Knight's father, Ken, was an alcoholic who openly used violence and intimidation to rape her mother up to 10 times a day. Barbara, in turn, often told her daughter's intimate details of her sex life and how much she hated sex and men. Later, when Knight complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted her to take part in a sex action want to do, Barbara told her to put up with it and stop complaining. Knight claims her father... Wait a minute. No. Knight claims that... Okay. Knight claims she was frequently sexually abused by several members of her family, though not by her father, ironically, which continued until she was 11. Although they had minor doubts had minor doubts about the details, psychiatrists accept her claim as all her family members confirmed the abuse did happen. Catherine was, by all accounts, a pleasant girl who experienced uncontrollable murderous rages in response to minor upsets. I feel like pleasant girl and uncontrollable murderous rages um, in response to minor upsets are kind of an, it's kind of an oxymoron. When she attended Muswell Brook High School, she became a loner and is remembered by classmates as a bully who stood over smaller children. She assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who was found at, once injured. No, she was once injured by a teacher who was found to have acted in self-defense. By contrast, when not in a rage, Knight was a model student, often earned awards for her good behavior. Again, it seems like an oxymoron, and she seems to be super bipolar, which obviously you cannot be diagnosed with bipolar at a very young age. Usually it doesn't show up until you're, like, past the age of 18. But it does seem like she's got some, like, weird stuff going on. And leaving school at 15 without having learned how to read or write. How did you go to school until you're 15 not learn how to read and write? I don't know. I just wanted to point that out. She gained employment as a cutter in a clothing factory. Twelve months later, she left to start what she referred to as her dream job, cutting up awful at a local abattoir, from where she was quickly promoted to boning and giving her own set of butcher knives. An abattoir is a meat factory, meat processing factory, or butcher shop. At home, she hung the knives over her bed so that they would always be handy if I needed them. A habit she continued until her incarceration everywhere she lived. Literally, this woman had knives over her headboard. Knives. Knives, Savannah. Knives. I said your name. I'm sorry. I said yours last time. So we're even. I mean, I guess if we wanted to say our real names, I guess it wouldn't be a, a big deal. No, because they don't know anything else about us. <clears throat> well, then we can just say, I'll just start saying your name from now on because I forget to call you Sav and you can just call me Victoria. It's fine. Okay. That's whatever. In 1973, David Stanford Kellett met Catherine and they pretty much hit it off right away. David. David. David was a heavy drinker and David? loved to fight. David. <laughs> David. David was a heavy drinker and loved to fight. Catherine was right, th right up there with him every time we got into a fight in any situation. She was a fighting girl herself and had already built up a reputation as such when she was a child. Um, David and Catherine married a year later because she because she wanted it. She basically bullied him into marrying her. They showed up to the ceremony with a drunk David on a motorcycle. This is a quote that Catherine's mother gave to David that I got from Murderpedia. The old girl said to me to watch out. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. And that was her freaking mother telling him that. She told me she's got something loose. She's got a, a, a screw loose somewhere. So, the, apparently she got a screw loose because she has knives over her bed. I just can't get over that. So, their wedding night was anything but magical. You know, your wedding night is supposed to be like a really, just a momentous occasion. And a lot of people would, it's not really that magical, honestly. But 
I mean, it can be. It should be a lot more pleasant than this. Because Catherine attempted to strangle David because he fell asleep. Apparently, you're supposed to have relations more than three times in one night, and David did not get that memo. So they did it three times. And then she strangled him because he fell asleep because he was tired. You told me about that. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous because guys can't go that long. Like, it's just not possible. They will fall asleep. And if you're doing it more than three times in one night, I commend you because I cannot do that. Like, no thank you. That was just the beginning of a tumultuous marriage. There's a lot of violence going on in this relationship. At one point, Catherine burned all of his clothes. Then she hit him with a frying pan because he came home late from a darts competition that he actually got to the finals of. Good grief, he isn't 16 years old and he has a curfew? Like, her husband has a curfew. I don't understand. She literally fractured his skull and he ran away. Ended up at a neighbor's house, collapsed on the floor. Um, like a true psychopath, she changed her tune when police arrived and David dropped the charges against her because he was literally going to file assault charges and he dropped them because she was like, oh baby, I love you, come back. In 1976, their first baby, Melissa Ann, was born. David took his shot and left Catherine for another woman, ending up moving to Queensland. He reported that Catherine was too possessive and violent. After Catherine found out that he had left, she was violently pushing Melissa Ann in her stroller down the street. She was literally throwing it from side to side. She was then diagnosed with postpartum depression and spent some time in St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth. I want to say, I don't think this was postpartum depression. I suffer from postpartum depression. That does not sound like that to me. That's not like straight fucking psychopath bitch. Ran over. Two months after her release, she placed her baby on the railroad tracks before the train was scheduled to come, stole an axe, went into the city, and threatened to kill everyone she saw. A, I assume, homeless man charmingly dubbed Old Ted was the hero in this story after finding Melissa Ann on the railroad tracks and saving her seconds before the train crossed their paths. Catherine was again taken to St. Elmo's Hospital, but signed herself out the next day, miraculously recovering from the psychotic episode. Shortly after her release from the hospital, she cut up a woman's face with a knife, then demanded that woman take her to find David. Luckily, that woman got away after they stopped at a gas station. Catherine was so mad that she got away that in, retali in, in retaliation, she grabbed a little boy and threatened him with her knife when the police got there. So, this is real funny. So, when the police got there, they literally attacked her with brooms. You heard me right. Brooms. They attacked her with brooms. Like, brooms. Like, sweep, sweep, brooms. Can we pause this and go eat dinner? I mean, yeah, I think we can pause it. Yeah, I can. Okay, I think I fixed it. Okay, we had to pause it. We had a spaghetti break. Okay, so what were we talking about before? The brooms thing? Yeah. I, I feel so weird because I'm, yeah. Um, so. I'm out of breath. I'm yeah, me, me, me too. Like yeah, yeah. Cancer. So, you know, the police got there. They attacked her with brooms. Why brooms? I really don't know. You would think in that kind of situation where she's threatening a little boy, they'd have their guns out. Or at least a taser. No, they only We're going to have to cut that out. That's not funny. I'm just saying it's true. I'm not saying that you're not wrong, but I'm just like, meh. We just need to be, be mindful. <laughs> okay, so then when they took her to another mental hospital, she told medical staff that she her intentions were to kill the mechanic at that particular gas station that she was at because he had fixed David's car. Apparently, since the mechanic fixed the car, it allowed David to run away from Catherine. Catherine then intended on killing David and his mother when she found him in Queensland. 
Um, so since David and Catherine are still technically married, police let him know what happened. Then, like a good husband, he left his girlfriend, then took his mother to Aberdeen to support Catherine. I am literally so confused by this. She wants to murder him, and he came back to take care of her with his mother, and she was going to kill him and his mother, and I guarantee she would have done it. Nice. I just don't understand. Catherine was released in August of 76 to her mother-in-law, and they all moved closer to Brisbane. Then she got a job at a meat processing factory in Ipswich. Things seemed to be going okay because they had another daughter, Natasha Marie, in March of 1980. Four years later, she left David of her own volition and moved in with her parents in Aberdeen. After a bit, she rented a house near a town called near Muswellbrook because that's where she went to high school. And she got her job back at the abattoir but sustained an injury to her back that landed her on disability. Disability has been a theme in these, in these recordings today. Since she now had the disability payments, she was able to move into government housing in Aberdeen. By all accounts, save for the injury, she was doing okay. But that's not the end of the story. We're just getting started. So Catherine, you know, she really liked men. So she ended up dating a 38-year-old man. Uh, he was a minor named David Saunders. Not to be confused with David Kellett the last time. David Saunders. And what is her obsession people named David? Are like, you'll, And you'll see later, like, she always goes from one to the other with the same name. It's just so weird. So they moved in together after a few months of dating and um, with her two kids, but David kept his apartment for some weird reason. This caused Catherine to grow a little suspicious of what he was up to when he was not with her. So she would, like, kick him out frequently because their marriage was not really that great. I guess it's good he kept his old apartment so he could go back when he was kicked out. Smart man. Catherine, however, would always beg him to come back, and he would. David Saunders. Just leave. Run away. Run away. Run away run away but Catherine, as we all know by now was a fucking psycho she started doing weird shit at one point she cut the throat of a dingo puppy in front of david to let him know what happened to him if he cheated on her after that fun combo she knocked him out with the frying pan i feel bad for any man who got with Catherine, but they should have stayed but he should have stayed gone all of them should have but their sex life must have been fine though because they had another girl named sarah in 88 David then thought it would be a good idea to put down payment on a house, and Catherine was able to pay the entire thing off with through reference point. Workman's Comp and 89 from her disability. I guess she must have got injured on the job. Catherine had eclectic taste, to say the least. So she tended to decorate with pitchforks, rakes, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, machetes, animal skins, skulls, and horns, and old boots. Literally every square of her house, including the ceilings, was covered in junk. And her and David's relationship continued to have its ups and downs. She hit him in the face with an iron. I don't know what her obsession is with hitting people with things made of metal. And after an argument, then stabbed him with a pair of scissors in the abdomen. So, she hit him in the face, the abdomen when they were arguing, and then stabbed him with a pair of scissors. He promptly moved out, and when he came back, she had cut up all of his clothes. So he got the fuck out of Dodge and ran away. Catherine was in hot pursuit of him, but couldn't find him, and the people that knew where he was would not tell her. Good were you. He came back several months later to see his daughter and found out that Catherine had gotten basically an EPO. I think that's, they call it something different in Australia. Um, she had gotten an EPO, an um, emergency protective order against him, telling police that she was terrified of him. Now, I know there's a lot of situations where the men are the abusers in domestic violence situations. And EPOs are appropriate and I'm not victim shaming at all. But there are occasions when the woman is the aggressor and the abuser, but the police will most often believe the woman over the man. I would just like to say that men can be abused. Yes, they can be. That's what I'm saying here. And then when a woman will go and get a quote-unquote EPO against her quote-unquote abusive husband or abusive boyfriend, whatever, they will all, they most likely will believe the woman, which I think you should believe women until they give you reason not to. But there's a lot of instances where men are abused too. 
So, you know. I don't think we should rule out men. And he was being abused in the situation. I don't know if Catherine was being abused in any of these relationships, but it sounds like she's more of the aggressor than, than all of them. So, then she decided to date this guy named John Chillingworth, who was 43 years old and they had a son named Eric. She stayed with him for about three years before leaving him to be with the dude she was cheating on John with, who was also named John. It was a man named John Price. What is her deal with dating men that have the same last name? Or the same name? First name, not last name. I don't know. David, then David, then John, then John. What the fuck? I don't understand. I really don't. Now, John Price, nickname was Pricey, had three other children from a previous relationship at the time that he was engaging in an affair with Catherine. Pretty much everyone loved John Price. He had gotten divorced in 88, so I guess his wife didn't love him all that much. He had two older children living with him and a younger daughter living with the ex-wife. According to Murderpedia, Price was well aware of Knight's violent reputations and she moved into his house in 1995. Her children, his, cho his children liked her. He was making a lot of money working in the local mines and apart from violent arguments, at first, life was a bunch of roses. In his quotes. After three, about three years later, they got into a nasty fight because Catherine wanted John to marry her and she looked, he looked at her track record and said, nah, bitch. So, in true Catherine fashion, she got her revenge by videoing stuff he had stolen from work and then sent the tape to his boss. Those items were reportedly um, medical kits that were uh, past their expiration dates. And he literally got them from the trash. From the, from the company's dumpster. Wow. He ended up getting fired after having worked for that company for about 17 years. So, you put in about 20 years to a company and you get fired because your, your, your woman is your, your fiancé, girlfriend or whatever, turned in a tape. To your boss. He was pissed, rightfully so, and it kicked out Catherine. So she went back to her own house, but bad news travels fast in a small town, so her reputation was just getting worse at this point. But John eventually forgave Catherine. It sounds like a hell of a guy to get back with someone like her, but he refused to let her move back in with him. Good for you. Boundaries are very important. They started fighting a lot more, and he lost a lot of his friends because they hated Catherine and did not want to be around them. Here's a quote up from Murderpedia that, that details what happens next, and this just made more sense to me do it like a just a reading from Murderpedia because it just m makes it sound a whole lot better than what I could have come up with. In February 2000, a series of assaults on Price culminated with Knight stabbing Price in the chest. Finally fed up, he kicked her out of the house. On, tw on the February 29th, he stopped at the Scone Magistrate's Court on his way to work and took out a restraining order to keep her away from both him and his children. That afternoon, Price told his co-workers that he, if he did not come to work the next day, it'd be because Knight had killed him. So he, he knew that he was going to die. They pleaded with him not to go home, but he told them that he believed she would kill his children if he did not. What a what a guy. Like, he was going to risk his own life to save his children. That just makes me sad. Mm -hmm. Price arrived home to find that night, although not there herself, has sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. He then spent the evening with the neighbors before going to bed at 11 p.m. Earlier that day, Knight had bought new black laundry and had videotaped all her children while making comments which had been interpreted as crude will. Or interpret it as a crude will. So basically she was just like, you know, I'm going to do my will, but I'm not going to do it professionally. Knight later arrived at Price's house while he was sleeping and sat watching TV for a few minutes before having a shower. She then woke Price and they had sex after which he fell asleep. She's not really fond of people falling asleep after sex. She's really not. But that's literally what guys do. Like, I'm not, not joking. At 6 a.m. the next morning, the neighbors became concerned that Price's car was still in the driveway. And when Price did not arrive at work, his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong. Both the neighbor and worker tried knocking at Price's bedroom window to wake him up. But after noticing blood on the front door, alerted the police who arrived at 8 a.m. Breaking down the back door, police found his body with night nice com comatose from taking a large number of pills. She So she obviously knew what she was doing because she was going to try to kill herself. 
She had stabbed Price with a butcher's knife while he was sleeping. According to blood evidence, he awoke and tried to turn on the light on turn tried to turn on the light before attempting to escape while Knight chased him through the house. He managed to open the front door and get outside, but either stumbled back inside or was dragged back into the hallway where he finally died after bleeding out. Later, Knight went into Aberdeen and withdrew a thousand dollars from Price's ATM account. Price's autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed at least 37 times in both the front and back of his body, with many of the wounds extending to vital organs. Several hours after Price had died, Knight skinned him and hung the skin from a meat hook on the architrave of a door to the lounge room. She then decapitated him and cooked part of his body, serving up the meat with baked potato, pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy in two settings at the dinner table, along with notes beside each plate, each having one, the name of one of Price's children on it. She was preparing to serve his body parts to his children. A third meal was thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons, and it speculated Knight had attempted to eat it but could not, and this had been put forward in support of her claim that she had no memory of this crime. Price's head was found in a pot with vegetables. The pot was still warm, estimated to be between 40 and 50 degrees Celsius, indicating the cooking had taken place in the early morning. Sometime later, Knight arranged the body with left arm draped over an empty 1.25 liter soft drink bottle with a legs crossed. This was claimed in court to be an act of defilement demonstrating Knight's contempt for Price. Knight had left a handwritten note on top of a photograph of Price. Blood stained and covered with small pieces of flesh, the note read, Time got you back, Jonathan, for rapping, raping, my, my daughter. You to Beck. Price's daughter for Ross for little John his son now play with little John's dick John Price and that's just a direct quote from that the accusation that were found to be groundless so obviously she was arrested <laughs> she wanted to plead guilty to manslaughter fuck no but the courts were not having that on February 2nd 2001 Catherine was around on the charge of I think first-degree murder she pled not guilty the trial began on October 15 2001 murder Peter signs up the trial very nicely when the trial commenced, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence which five accepted. When the witness list was read out to the prospects, several more also dropped out after which the jury was impaneled. Knight's attorneys then spoke to the judge who adjourned to the following day. The next morning, Knight changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. It was now made public that Justice O'Keefe had been advised of the plea change the day before. He had adjourned the trial and had ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Knight understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was fit to make such a plea. Knight's legal team had planned to defend Knight by claiming amnesia and dissociation, a claim supported by most psychiatrists, although they did not consider her sane. Although, although they did consider her sane. No reason has ever been guilt given for the guilty plea, and despite giving it, Knight still refused to accept responsibility for her actions. At the sentencing hearing, Knight's lawyers requested that Knight be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but the application was refused. Thank you. When Doc, when Doc, I'm just. It's never good when you hear "Oh God." I'm probably. I'm gonna have to pause this. I need to figure out what the, what's going on. I'm getting worried. I don't know how to. Play. Okay, so he figured out the situation. She just got scared and then she spit up, like projectile vomited. So we gave her her medicine. I'm gonna see if she has any comments on the case this far. Because we're giving Daddy a break. You have any comments, Char? Yeah. Do you have anything to say? Hi, pretty. Do you have a few moments to talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? <laughs> <laughs> so if you hear her, I apologize, but I'm... Not really. She's a mother, so get over it. I'm sorry. That is tacky.
I mean, I'm not still really. feeling tacky. You're not tacky. You're not tacky. Um, no reason has ever been given for this guilty plea, and despite giving it, Knight still refused to accept responsibility for her actions. At the sentencing hearing, Knight's lawyers requested that Knight be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but the application was refused. When Dr. Timothy Lyons took the stand and described the skinning and decapitation, Knight became hysterical and had to be sedated. Like, all right, that bitch. That reminds me of that TikTok sound, Somebody Sedate Me from Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> Somebody Sedate Me! On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out the nature of the crime and Knight's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life imprisonment, refused to fix a non-parole period, and ordered that her papers be marked never to be released, the first time this had been imposed on a woman in Australian history. In June 2006, Knight appealed the life sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in jail with a possible parole was too severe for the killing. He was not too, too severe. Justices Peter McClellan, Michael Adams, and Megan Latham dismissed the appeal on the NSW Court of Criminal Appeal in September, with Justice McClellan writing in his judgment, this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation of civilized society. So now I'm going to read you this article I found on abc.net. To all who knew her, Catherine Marinette was a hard worker who loved socializing at the local RSL. The key points, she has spent 20 years in jail from the murder of John Price. Knight was the first one in Australia to be jailed without parole. Locals have been unable to forget the day the news broke, and this they say it's very graphic. We already kind of talked about all of, it, about all of this. But late on the night of February 29, 2000, Knight skinned and beheaded her partner, John Price, at his home in the New South Wales town of Aberdeen, northwest of Newcastle. The post-morning examination revealed that Mr. Price had been stabbed at least 37 times in various parts with the front and back of his body. Knight, who was a highly skilled meat worker, subsequently became the first Australian woman to be sentenced into life in prison without parole. At the time, meeting Australia and abroad dubbed her the female Hannibal Lecter. Skin removed to form a literal pelt. The Supreme Court sentencing judge Barry O'Keefe found that once he was dead, Mr. Price's body was moved into file. After he had been dead for some time, his body was dragged by the prisoner from the hallway to the lounge room, and thereafter the prisoner skinned Mr. Price's body, Justice O'Keefe said. This was carried out with considerable expertise and, she ob and an obviously steady hand, so that his skin, including that of the head, face, nose, ears, neck, torso, <laughs> genital organs, and the legs, was removed so as to form one pelt. She literally skinned him to the point where just one, just one fell, like, one whole pelt. What a piece of garbage. Yes. Is she dead yet? I don't think she because is. Because if so, middle fingers to hell. If not, middle fingers to Australia for you. The house where John Price was murdered still stands but has undergone a makeover. So expertly was it done, um... The, the killing. After the poor post-mortem examination, the skin was able to be re-sewn onto Mr. Price's body in a way that, which indicated clear and appropriate, albeit grisly, methodology. Uh, sometime after Mr. Price had been skinned, the prisoner hung his pelt on a meat oh, hook oh, oh. on the architrave of the door. Are you okay? She's trying to sit up. <laughs> of the lounge room, where it remained until it was later removed by investigating police. Um... Knight was known as a skilled meat worker, like I said before. Uh, Justice O'Keefe said Knight then prepared her murder partner's body for dinner. Not only was Mr. Price's head removed, but parts of his buttocks were also sliced off, he said. Gross. The excised parts of Mr. Price were then taken by the prisoner to the kitchen. At some stage, after she had peeled and prepared various vegetables, yes? she cooked Mr. Price's head in a large pot together with a number of the vegetables what? she had prepared. So as to produce a, a, a sickening what? stew. She also baked parts of the body in an oven. Um... Pieces cut from Mr. Price's buttocks were baked in the oven together with other with other of the vegetables she had peeled, and the gruesome steaks were then arranged on plates she left as meals for the son and daughter of the deceased. The prisoner showed no mercy whatsoever to Mr. Price. The last minutes of his life must have been a time of abject terror for him, as they were a time of utter enjoyment for her. 
That's that's fucking savage. That justice said that's that. She is without a doubt a very dangerous person, likely if released into into the community to commit further acts of serious violence, including even murder against those who cross her, particularly males. A crime of the kind committed by the prisoner calls for the maximum penalty the law empowers the court to impose. Uh Residents who were in the town at the time say they never forgotten the crime. Among them, Rick Banyard, who lived at the road from the scene. Absolutely, it was a dark day. It came on the blue, Mr. Banyard said. I think basically nobody sort of expected any significant drama at all, let alone the crime that became recorded as one of the worst pieces of, of history in Australia. Um, Rick Banyard knew Catherine Knight and John Price. I knew both Catherine and John quite well, and regularly met with them at the RSO club on a Saturday night with other people who visited the club. Mr. Banyard said everyone knew Knight was good at her job. Catherine was a hard-working meat worker, a very proficient meat worker at that, Mr. Banyard said. In some quirky sort of way, I think there was a bit of information in what she did and how she did it. It was clearly her skills as a meat worker that allowed her to do what she did. What was in her brain at the time or whatever, I don't know. But, um, whatever provoked it, I don't know. I don't know if the relationship was ever a perfect match, but it was nothing out of the norm. If you know what I mean, just a normal, everyday arrangement. Mr. Banyard said he still feels for the policeman who was first arrested at the scene. The person I really feel sorry for is the police officer and his wife, who was also a police officer, he said. They lived in Aberdeen, they worked in Aberdeen, they were very good community people, and he would have known both parties from normal everyday life. I mean, just, I just imagine the horrific shock that he got when he opened the door to find out what the disturbance was and what had gone on, to suddenly be com- confronted with a sight like. I think it must have been an unbelievably stressful, and it just blew him away. In 2016, it was announced that a film which a doc with a life of night, who is now in her 60s, has been picked up by a hollow production studio. Night's Files marked never to be released. So, yes, I think she is still alive. I think she's 65. Let's see. She's 65, yeah. So, yeah. Blue-eyed butcher. Yeah, that's messed up. Uh, I know. Isn't it crazy? Like, I've never heard of this woman before. But she is pretty much a conundrum in and of herself. And I swear. Like, I, I never could find anything, like, about her, um, um, what you would call it, her psychological issues. But I wonder if Murderpedia has something on there. I don't, I don't know if she, since she pled guilty, I don't know. If, I know there was a psych evaluation done. Um, Why not in public? I don't know. That's what I'm going to look for. Well, there was a... I'm trying to look and see. Oh, I could just eat you up. Even though you smell like spit up. It doesn't really say. That's kind of unfortunate. Let's let's Google. Was Catherine Knight ever diagnosed with anything? With mental illness. Hi. Hi, do you want to take a Snapchat with Catherine you? Knight was close to what was termed mad. She had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and two of her, the three consultant psychiatrists at the first trial believed her chances for cure, for cure were nil. <laughs> That's really sad. Sounds pretty accurate. That sounds pretty accurate, I would say. I would think that there would be more, yeah, but that I don't even know if I have any more words to say after that nonsense. Like That was just a lot of information. Somebody texted me. I got distracted. But anywho, what do you think about that? Um, I think that's messed up, but now I want a baked potato. I, I just wonder, like, how the pumpkin kind of factored into that. Because she has pumpkin and zucchini and squash and a baked potato. But she, she baked it and she put it in the stew and she boiled the head. But did she take off the hair first? I, don't I honestly think there's more wrong with her than borderline personality disorder. 
like her life started off really shitty but i mean i told you guys we're just gonna be downhill from here she literally skinned him so expertly that it was just one piece so we got like an amateur ed gain up in this house which we will cover at some point but you know i don't even know if i have any more words for that i feel like i i don't even have words to describe any of that but I don't think there could ever be words to describe that. She's still alive, though. She's still kicking. 65 fucking years old. Middle fingers to Australia to you. Yes. Just did it with one hand, not the other yes, one. Yes, I did too, because I'm holding the baby and, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry if you guys could hear her, but we're just kind of giving Daddy a break a little bit. And she's been better now Ow. that we've been giving her Pepsi for her acid reflux. Yeah, she's a cutie though. Oh no, follow us on Instagram. Aww, that's sweet of him. Well, I think that's it for this episode of All Things Wicked and Vile. I don't really have much more to say after that. I pick up my mic that uh, she ripped off of me. Well, it's just it's it's fun to rip off. You can probably just lay her there. She'll just kick around. We're and... having fun. Okay, that's fine. If you want to hold her, that's fine too. But if tell you want, mom, tell mom we're having fun. No She's comment? just like, nah, I want to look at the lamp. No comment? The lamps are fun. I'm going to put that in my Charles, mouth. Charles, do you have a comment? Oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> she likes it when I make kissy noises. Okay. Okay, well, that's all that I have for this episode. So, peace out, bros. Bye. You didn't say peace I out. Know, I, was gonna, I was thinking what you said. Peace out, bros.